Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please open your Bible to Psalm chapter, or not Psalm chapter, I'm sorry. Psalm, let's see, we'll go with Psalm 23, a familiar psalm. Psalm 23. We're covering several psalms this morning, but we'll read Psalm 23 this morning. Psalm 23 and then Psalm 100. Psalm 23. Does anyone have that in the, what's the page number, Royce? 483. Okay, page 483. Psalm 23. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Amen. And then Psalm 100, to the right. Psalm 100, another familiar psalm that we're going to be referring to today. 526, page 526 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 100. A psalm of thanksgiving. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. His people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. Father, we praise you and thank you because you are good. Your faithful love endures forever. Your faithfulness through all generations from Abraham's generation to King David's generation to Jesus, your ultimate, the ultimate Messiah, the final Messiah, the Messiah and Christ and that generation of apostles all the way to us in 2018. You, you have been faithful. You have kept your promise to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You have kept your promise, and we praise you for that. We praise you that you are our shepherd and that we can be comforted and strengthened and confident in trials. And so, Lord, we pray like we sung, speak, Father, so that our church, so that we, our, our church family might be built and so that this earth would be filled with your glory. If you do not speak, Lord, we are hopeless. If, you, if your spirit does not open our hearts and our ears and soften us, then these will be words that fall on hard soil. So soften our hearts and change us. Transform us by your word. Give us faith and repentance that we might rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus had a encounter with a woman at a well in Samaria. Some of you know that story. It's in John chapter 4. I was reading it with my kids this week for our, my devotions, just reading it out loud to them. 
um, Jesus is there with a woman from Samaria, and she asks Jesus, where should we worship? So Jesus convicts her about her sexual morality and adulterous uh, record of lifestyle, and then she changes the subject by saying, where should we worship? And Jesus says in John four twenty three and 24, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, neither in Jerusalem anymore or in Samaria, um, but the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, listen to this. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we have a Father in heaven who seeks worshipers, seeks worship. We are told who to worship, and we are told how to worship in spirit and in truth. So as Christians, as those who love God and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, we desire, we passionately desire to praise and worship God in spirit and in truth. We want to worship God and no one else, and we want to worship him rightly because he deserves it, and it is our greatest privilege and joy to worship and treasure God. The problem for us often is that our feelings fluctuate. If we're not to worship God only in truth, according to biblical truth, but with feelings, with, with, our, with our spirit and soul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, if we're to worship God not just on the outside with our lips, but also with our hearts, um, it's difficult because our feelings fluctuate. Our feelings are often fickle. Our circumstances are always shifting and changing, and so we are constantly dealing with different circumstances, ups and downs, trials and treasures, blessings and burdens, constantly. We're, every time we greet each other week after week, we're in a different place than we were last week. And we'll be in a different place next week if the Lord keeps us alive and if he tarries from coming. We will be in a different place. And so there's a, there's a constant shift. We're never in the same situation, even moment to moment. And so our feelings also move around with that. And so how do we worship God in spirit from our hearts with our feelings when our feelings shift so easily? I have a question for you this morning. Do you feel defeated and resigned to your, fictu- to your fickle and fluctuating feelings toward God? Do you, feel res- do you feel defeated by that? Do you feel resigned? Like you just give up? You know, like, I mean, I want to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength, but that's impossible. It's impossible to do it 24-7. And so, you know what? Just forget it. It's just, it's too high of a bar. Um, so, so I give up. I could never worship God truly with my feelings. And so when I have great feelings for God, great. When I don't, well, I guess I got to fake it during those seasons. I feel defeated far too often. I don't want to feel this way. I know that you don't want to feel this way when we worship God. We want to worship Jesus. All true Christians want to worship Jesus. And here's the good news of the book of Psalms. The good news is that God redeems and renews us and how we feel towards him through his word and through his son. God renews us. That's what we just sang, right? Renew our minds. I have the wrong song here in front of me. But yeah. Renew our minds. We want to be renewed, and God renews us in his word. And so God wants to help us to worship him this morning. He wants to help us to be happy in him. Remember Psalm 1-1, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in a group of mockers. Instead, his delight 
is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. So we want to be happy people. The book of Psalms is about the happy man who worships God. And so we want happiness. We want happiness in God. We want God's blessing and his favor and his face shining on us and protecting us. And so we want to be the happy man and the happy woman, the happy child of God. And so here's the main goal of the Psalms. It's the same main goal as last week. We're just getting the third point this week, but here's the main goal. Pray and praise God in the midst of opposition so that you live happy in God and his coming kingdom. If we want to be the happy worshipers, then we need to pray and praise God in the midst of opposition, difficulty, trial, so that we live happy in God and his coming kingdom. Now, what is God's kingdom? God's coming kingdom is his sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule. It's the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God over his people, eventually in his renewed place. Okay, so God's reign over his redeemed people in his renewed place. That's the kingdom of God, and it's coming in its fullness. It's already here when Christ came, but it's not here in its fullness. And so we're waiting for that. So we have opposition, we have trials, but in the midst of that, let us pray and praise God in the midst of that trial so that we live happy in God and his coming kingdom. All right, the book of Psalms teaches us, just reviewed from last week, it teaches us three ways to pray and praise God. Pray and praise God with uh, focus, pray and praise God with the storyline, and pray and praise God with feelings. Last week we covered the first two, so we're, not, we're just going to recap here very briefly. Pray and praise God with focus. Focus on two things. Psalm 1, focus on what? God's what? God's word. I heard one person say that. Yeah. Focus on God's word. And then in Psalm 2, focus on God's Messiah, his king, his anointed one. Okay? As you read the book of Psalms, focus on God's word and his Messiah. That is your focus as you read through all of the Psalms. That's the first thing. If you're going to pray, so when you pray and when you praise God, Focus on Jesus, the ultimate Messiah, and focus on God's word. Let that direct your prayers. Secondly, though, pray and praise God with the storyline. Now, we spent all of our time last sermon on this point. We'll spend a minute or less right now on it. So what do we mean pray and praise God with the storyline? Well, the, the book of Psalms is how many books? Five books. It has five books in the Psalms, and it's broken up into five. So five books have five parts, and it's the story of David and the story of Israel and really our story. So in books one and two, David's throne is established through a lot of trials and tribulations. David's throne is established because he was anointed as a shepherd boy to be king, but he wasn't king for a long time. So there's the trials, and then his throne is established, and then during his reign, was it a perfect reign or a shaky reign? It was a shaky reign. And so book two emphasizes, you know, we read Psalm 51 and prayed Psalm 51, his adultery and his repentance there. He has a, an arrogant, proud heart during the census as well. So it was, it was a good reign, but it was a shaky reign. And that's book one and two, okay, the establishment and the, the, the reign of David. And he has this great promise that he's going to be, that his, his descendant will be on the throne forever. The problem with that is in book three, we have the kingship, what? The kingship declines, and eventually they're what? They're exiled, right? They're kicked out of the land. So the, the Davidic kingship is, exiled, is declining in their idolatry, and then they're eventually kicked out of the land. That's book three. In book four and book five, there's hope. Even though there is no Davidic king on the throne, God is king, and, and, and he will gather us. He will redeem us again. And so in book four, God is king, and the kingdom is coming, and book five begins in Psalm 107 with God has redeemed us 
from all the places of the world. God has brought us back to his land. He has accomplished the second exodus, the redemption in Christ. Okay, and so that's the story of of the book of Psalms. So when you pray to God, pray with the story of the Bible in your mind, that God had promised a king. He eventually established a king and a kingdom, but that kingdom fell in their sin and we fell in our sin. But there's hope because God's king in the midst of our trials. And Christ came and redeemed us, and yet we're still praying in trials, aren't we? Aren't you still in trials today, even though Christ has come and risen and rules in heaven? And so we pray with the story in our mind because Christ is coming back again. We pray with the saints all across the world, with everyone across the world, no matter what language they speak, they should all understand this word, Maranatha, come Lord, come Lord Jesus. We pray with the coming kingdom in mind as God's happy people. Okay, that's all review. And now we come to our third point. So you're gonna pray and praise with focus. You pray and praise with the story of the Bible and your story and David's story and Jesus' story. And then lastly, third, pray and praise God with emotions, with feelings. I would say with the full range of emotions, okay? And we learn from the kingship, we pray and pray, we pray with the Messiah and we pray in the Messiah. I do need to clarify that because I think three of you said this last week. What do you mean pray with the Messiah and pray in the Messiah? What I mean by praying with the Messiah, who wrote most of the Psalms? Who's the author? David, he's the anointed one, right? He was anointed as a kid, so he is a, he is a Messiah. And so you're, you realize as you're reading Psalm 51 or Psalm 23, who's praying? David's praying, and you should pray too, but who are you praying with? You're praying with David, at least the, the Israelites were. And now for us, who's the ultimate Messiah? Jesus. And Jesus takes the Psalms as his prayers. So as you read the Psalms, pray with Jesus, because it even says in Hebrews 7 and um, that, that Jesus intercedes for us. Jesus prays for us. And so we pray with him. We pray with Jesus as we pray. But not only do we pray with Jesus, but we pray in Jesus because we end all of our prayers with in Jesus what? In Jesus' name. So we're praying with a sense that we're united to Jesus. And only because we're united to Jesus, our Savior, can God accept and hear our prayers. So we pray with Jesus, we pray in the Messiah, but let's pray with a full range of emotions. All right, there are eight emotions that I want to go through. So we're going to look through eight different types of Psalms, okay? Let me tell you, let me tell you the eight subpoints here, and then we'll go through them. And they're short. Praise Yahweh, thank Yahweh, heed Yahweh, trust Yahweh, that's number four. Five, lament to Yahweh. Number six, repent to Yahweh. Yahweh is God's covenant name in the Old Testament. Number seven, rage with Yahweh. And number eight, praise Yahweh. So it's really seven because I'm doing praise on both sides, but it's because it's a book of praise. Okay, so praise God, thank God, heed God, trust God, lament to God, repent to God, rage with God, and then praise God. All right? Those are the eight types of things. And, and you, could pray God, pray, you could pray and praise God with the full range of emotions because we're just going to cover seven different emotions. So here's the first one. Praise Yahweh. Turn to Psalm 117. The shortest psalm, the shortest chapter, really, in the whole Bible. Psalm 117. Psalm 117. We're going to do several psalms today, so you're just going to have to be kind of flipping through. 
and I'm not going to go deep into any of them, but we'll just kind of skim the surface here and get, get, the, get the feeling here that God wants us to pray with. Psalm 117, page 537. Praise the Lord or praise Yahweh all nations. Glorify him all peoples. So there's a call to praise. So we should praise God. There's the, so in a praise psalm, you have the call to praise. Now who's being commanded here? All what? All nations and all peoples. Peoples, not all people, all peoples. Why does it say peoples and not people? Because it's all ethnic people groups. It's not just people plural, it's peoples. All ethnic people groups. It's a missional, it's missions. Every nation, no matter where you are on the globe, everyone should praise not just your God of your tribe, of your nation. Praise who? Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every ethnic people group, every person on this globe is obligated and privileged to praise Yahweh. So that's the call to praise. And then in verse 2, you get the basis for praise. Four, why should we praise Yahweh? For his faithful love to us is great. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise Yahweh. But in verse 2, you get the you get the basis. Why should I praise God? Why should I praise God when I'm going through hard times? Why should I praise God when I'm um, grieving the loss of somebody? Why should I praise God when I have been badly hurt? Why should I praise God when I'm deep in my sin and I don't want to repent? 80% of me doesn't want to repent and 20% does. Why should I praise God? Why? What's the answer in verse 2? Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your trials. Look at who? God. His faithful love to us is great. The Lord's faithfulness endures. How long? Forever. The key to praising God is prizing God. That's what John Piper has said. The key to praising God is, is prizing God, and you only prize God when you think about who he is and what he's doing in your life. Lift up your eyes from looking around at your circumstances and people around you. Lift your eyes up to heaven, and when you see the glorious, praiseworthy God, what should you do? Praise him. So what's the emotion here? The emotion here is worship. The emotion here is joy. The emotion here is, well, there's a lot of different kinds of worship emotions, but that's the main thing is the emotion here is worshiping God through praise. All right? So praise the Lord. Secondly, thank the Lord. Thank God. Go to Psalm 66. Psalm 66. That is on page 505 and page 506. At the bottom of 505 and to the top of page 506. um, Thank God. And so what's the emotion here? The emotion is gratitude. And in a, in, a, in a thanksgiving psalm, you have usually a summons to praise, and then you have the basis for it, and then um, usually there's some trouble that you're thanking God for, and then there's a vow. So let me look at, let's look at some of these pieces here. Look at Psalm 66, verse 1. Psalm 66, verse 1. Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God, sing about the glory of his name, make his praise Glorious. So here's the heat. Uh, there's a call here. Thank God. Praise God. In verse 3, say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. So here there's a call to praise God, a call to thank God in your life. Now, um, some of you are not parents. I apologize. You are. I'm preaching during a season where I have Five kids under 12, so you get a lot of kid analogies, parent analogies for, for preaching. I'll try to do different things, but this is the natural ones. You know, you, when you have kids, you say, you tell them, okay, go say thank you, right? They, they get a gift, and you give them the words to say, and they go up and they say, 
thank you for my gift, you know. And you're, they're just basically parroting your words. And you want them as a parent, you're kind of embarrassed, right? And you want them to have this great joy and gratitude, but they don't feel it. But you're giving them the words to say. It, that's, that's how verse 3 feels, right? He, it's like the psalmist is telling us, here's what you're to say to God. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works? Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. And we're, we're there praying, God, how awe-inspiring are your works? Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. But um, just notice that even we are like children, that God has to coach us in how to talk to him, in how to praise him. And that's okay. We shouldn't be arrogantly stubborn. How dare you, God, tell me what to say? No, thank you, Lord, for giving me words to say because my words shape my beliefs, and I'm not always aware of how my words are shaping my beliefs in the wrong way. So yes, give me a script. Sometimes. It's good to have script sometimes. And so God is calling us to thank him. And then he gives us the basis of redemption in verses 5 through 9. Why should we praise God? Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. What did he do? Verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land and they crossed the river on foot. They, there we rejoiced in him. What is that talking about? The what? Exodus, redemption, right? The, the crossing of the sea on dry land. If you're not familiar with that, that's when God redeemed Israel. He rules forever by his might. He keeps his eye on the nations. The rebellious should not exalt themselves. Bless our God, you peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He keeps us alive and he does not allow our foot to slip. So thank God. Why? Because he redeems us. He works for us. He rules. And then, and then a lot of Thanksgiving Psalms, when you thank God, that doesn't mean you ignore your troubles. You actually... Name your troubles. Look at verses 10 through 12. Why should we thank God even in the midst of this? For you, God, what did God do? He what? Tested us. You refined us as silver is refined. Where is silver refined? In what? In fire. You put us through the fire, God. You lured us into a trap. You placed burdens on our back. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out to abundance. That's what Thanksgiving is, right? Thanksgiving is on the back end of the trials. I went through this crazy season in my life, and God, you put this burden on my back. You were in control, and at the end, you brought us through. We thank you. We praise you. So, so there's, it, it, often there's a report of trouble and sharing of thanksgiving. And then in verses 13 and 15, oftentimes when you thank God, there's a vow, a promise that goes with it. Not only do I thank you, God, for delivering me, here's a promise. I'm going to live for you. Look at verses 13 and 15. What's his promise here? I will enter your house with burnt offerings. That's the temple for us. It's entering the gathering of the saints. The people of God is the temple. Now, I will enter your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows that my lips promised and my mouth spoke during my distress. You know, when you're in distress, God, if you get me through this, I promise I will fill in the blank, right? He's saying those words that I promised when I was in trial, I will fulfill them. Verse 15 I will offer you fattened sheep as burnt offerings with the fragrant smoke of rams. I will sacrifice bulls and goats. We're not doing that today. We give God the sacrifice of praise. We focus on the sacrifice of of Christ for us, and we celebrate that. But we also keep our vows. We will take up our cross. We said we'll take up our cross and follow him, didn't we? We said we would praise him. We said we would think about him. We would remember him in the communion. We would share the gospel with people. We will keep our vows, sacrificing our lives in praise to God. That's, a, that's the response to Thanksgiving. And then in verses 16 through 20, you have the final call to come and thank God. Come and listen, 
all who fear God. So there's a call to continue to thank. You know, Jesus also gave prayers of thanksgiving. Let me, let me read to you two of them. Luke 10, let me give you a bad example that Jesus gives. Not, he's not the bad example, but he gives a bad example. And then a good example of a thanksgiving prayer. Here's the bad example. Luke 18.11. Listen to Luke 18.11. It says this. Jesus is talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. And he says that the tax collector gives a prayer of thanksgiving. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Now, that's a Thanksgiving prayer, but it's a self-exalting, self-centered, self-righteous. It's a sinful Thanksgiving prayer. There's such a way of thanking God sinfully, and that's a bad example, okay? So I'm not, we're not saying thank God in that way, but thank God in the Luke ten twenty one sense. Here's how Jesus thanked God. Did you know Jesus did Thanksgiving prayer? Jesus actually did all these prayers, but um, Luke ten twenty one. At that time, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you. Here's Jesus' prayer of praise and thanksgiving. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. There's a praise. Here's why. Because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. So there's a prayer. Thank, I thank you, God, for what? That you hide your truth from the arrogant people. Who think who you hide your truth from the know-it-alls, and you reveal yourself to babies who are crying for more milk, who are desperate for you. I thank you, God. So you thank God, you give the basis for your thanksgiving to God, and then you keep your vows of walking and living for God. Okay, so that's number number one is praise God with an emotion of worship and joy. Thank God with an emotion of gratitude. Third, heed God. Heed God. Now, you don't hear the word heed every week. You probably only hear it in this church um, from day to day. Or, you know, I use that word regular. It's one of my favorite words. I love the word heed because it has, it's, two word, it's two ideas in one. What are the two ideas in the word heed? First, you need to hear, and then you need to what? Obey or listen, right? Yeah. So I guess you could use the word listen. Listen kind of has, you know, are you hearing me or are you listening? But it's not just hearing God's word or hearing God. You're hearing with an attitude of, I'm going to obey. That's the word heed. You need to heed God when you pray. You need to listen and not just listen and criticize what God says and give your 10 excuses or caveats why you can't obey that particular command. No, you hear with a humble heart ready to obey. So if you're going to pray, heed God. And when, when we say heed God, this is the, these are the wisdom psalms. And the emotion here is the emotion of peace. You ever feel peace deep within? That's, that's, a, that's a good emotion to feel. When you, when you have peace, how do you pray? Pray the wisdom psalms. Pray psalms of heeding God. God, thank you for the state of peace I'm in. I just want to keep hearing your word. I just want to keep listening to you and, and, and loving you. So let me just, let's look at one um, wisdom psalm. Psalm 37. Turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 1 is another um, wisdom psalm. Psalm 37 says, um, this is just like Psalm 1. It's, an, it's a wisdom. It, it almost reads like Proverbs. 
kind of. So here's, here's the psalm. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Listen to all these commands. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Don't be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil. Refrain from your anger. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Don't be agitated. It can only bring what? Harm. What are these? These are instructions, right? This is wisdom. And then when you read on, we're not going to read the whole psalm, but as you read on, it talks about the wise and the wicked person. Here's what the wise, godly person is like. Here's what the unrighteous, wicked person is like. Now, time out. Let's just take a step back from Psalm 37. Is this a prayer? It's not really a prayer, right? These, who's, who's the one talking here? I mean, the psalmist is talking, but what is he giving us? He's giving us what? Instructions or commands. So it's like God is commanding who? Us, right? But isn't prayer us talking to God? But here in these wisdom psalms, God is talking to us. Why? What do we learn about prayer in that regard? Prayer is a conversation. It's not a one-way monologue where you just, you know, wax eloquently of your burdens to God. You're also listening to God in prayer. That's why when Psalm 1, you focus on the word when you pray, right? So you, you let God speak to you too. You speak to God, God speaks to you. If your prayer life is going to be rich, then you need to, have, you need to feel peace when God is speaking to you. Yes, these are words of wisdom. Water to my thirsty soul. Yes, Lord, as I'm praying to you about my burdens, as I'm praising you, or as I'm raging with you, or as I'm lifting up these prayer requests, or as I'm thanking you, I need you to keep speaking to me as well. And I want to hear it. I feel peace when you speak to me. I need your instructions. So heed Yahweh. Don't just thank God and praise God, but heed him with an emotion here of peace. Now, does Jesus also model this? Does Jesus tell us, does Jesus model listening to God and his word? Yes, and Jesus also gives us instructions. I mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount, which is our next series after we're, we're here in the Old Testament for a few weeks, and we're going to go back to the New Testament, we're going to go to Matthew 5 through 7. And all of that is about God's, Jesus' instructions. Here's, word, here's my word for you. You've heard it said to you, don't, um, don't um, murder. I say to you, don't hate a person. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't look after a woman with lustful intent. You have heard it said to you, um, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemies. Instruction, 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 instruction. If you're going to pray to God, you need to heed God as you pray. All right? So praise God, thank God, heed God. Fourthly, trust God. Trust God. Now, we read Psalm 23, so I'm not going to read it again. But let me just talk about Psalm 23 as you turn to Psalm 121. So you turn to Psalm 121. Turn to Psalm 121, which is on page... 543, page 543, Psalm 121. The idea here is these are psalms of trust when you're, in, feel, when you're feeling confidence, when you're in danger. So what is Psalm 23 about? The Lord is my what? Shepherd, I'm walking through the darkest valley or through the valley of the shadow of death, and I will fear what? No evil. Your rod and your staff, they, they guide me, and you, know, you comfort me. What is that? 
I mean, in the midst of the darkest valley, and some of you brothers and sisters right now are going through dark valleys. Some of you are not, and you will be soon. So some of you are currently there. Some of you are on your way there. Some of you are on your way out of one. But in the dark valleys, we're tempted to not trust God, right? We're tempted to complain. And here, the prayers of trust, feeling con- the feeling here is confidence. God, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this situation, but I'm confident in you. You're my shepherd. You care about me. You're powerful towards me. You're good. You're faithful. And these are really Psalms. Now, in Psalm 23, is the psalmist David talking to God? Just listen to the words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Is he talking to God? No. Who's he talking to? You might say he's talking to other people, but I might have heard it from here. Who's he talking to? Himself. When, even when you're praying, you're almost preaching to yourself the truths of the goodness of God so that you're confident in God when you're in a shaky situation. He's preaching to himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones has famously said in, the book of, in, in his book, Spiritual Depression, have you noticed how often you listen to yourself rather than talk to yourself? When you wake up in the morning, what, who's the first voice you hear? Your voice in your head talking to yourself. You didn't give yourself permission to talk, start talking. Your mind just starts Yakking as soon as you wake up, right? And so Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you need to tell yourself to shut up. And then you need to preach to yourself. I'm not going to listen to whatever random thoughts just flow into my mind. I'm going to stop those thoughts and I'm going to preach to myself. No, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Satan takes your random flow of thoughts to destroy you. That's why we want to take every thought captive to who? To Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10, right? We take every thought captive to Christ because our free-flowing thoughts are not neutral. They lead us astray. They are open doors for sin and Satan to waltz into our lives and dominate us. So here, in the midst of trial and difficulty, he preaches to himself. You could even hear, I guess I'll somewhat embarrass John a little bit here. Um, You could even hear it in John's prayer where he was switching from the third person to the second person in Psalm 103, he said, uh, the you. Did you say the you? We bless the you, Lord. Because it was the third person, right? He's praying Psalm 103. It was in the third person, bless the Lord. But we're praying it in the second person. So we're like, we bless the you, Lord. And he starts praying to the Lord. But, um, because, but, but there's, there, we, I asked John to, to put in the second person. So that was difficult. But not only that, but, but the third person is instructive. There's a reason why the Psalms are not all second person straight to God. Because there is a place to talk to yourself and to talk to others even as you're praying to God. Okay, notice that prayer is this conversation that's, that's moving around. Let, let, let's look at one of these, Psalm 121. Just notice how the psalmist here is talking. He's preaching to himself even as he has a prayerful spirit towards God. Listen to this. I lift my eyes toward the mountain. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He's talking to himself. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip, PJ. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel will not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you, PJ, or you put, put your own name there. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. It's a prayerful spirit, but he's preaching to himself. So brothers and sisters, preach to yourself. The Psalms of confidence, the Psalms of trust, 
When you're in dark times, when you're in difficult situations, you can trust God. God is trustworthy. He does not sleep. He does not fall asleep at the will. He does know your pain. He does care for you. He knows the wrestlings of your body and soul and mind and heart. And he's with you. Don't let your thoughts linger elsewhere at that point as you pray to God. All right? Jesus does this as well. When he was in danger and trouble, Matthew 26, 39, going a little farther, it says, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So there he is. He's in danger, the greatest danger that anyone will ever face, the wrath of God, the cup of wrath. And he's praying with confidence. God, please take it away. Father, please take it away. But if not, I trust you. Let your will be done, not mine. And how do we know he trusted him? Because if you read a few verses later in the same chapter, when, when the disciple cuts off the ear and they want to fight against the soldiers, Jesus says, he says, put your sword away. And then he says, in verse 53 of Matthew 26, do you, don't you, or do you think I cannot call my father and he'll provide me here now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Is Jesus confident or not confident? He's confident. He's saying, don't you know that I can call 12,000 angels 12, 000, or 12 legions of angels? Why, did, why is Jesus confident? Because he just prayed. And he prayed a prayer of confidence, a, prayer, a psalm of trust. God, even as I'm about to bear the cup of your wrath, I trust you. You are with me. You are guiding me. It's a psalm of trust. Okay, confidence. So let's recap the four so far. Praise God. Thank God. What was the third one? Uh, What? Heed. Heed God. And fourth, trust God. Fifthly, these are psalms of lament. Lament to God. This one's important. We have how many psalms in the book of Psalms? Anyone know? 150. You know how many are lament psalms? 73. It's by far the greatest number. You would think praise psalms are the greatest. They are greatest towards the end of the book. But lament psalms are the most frequent. Why would we need to lament? Lamenting, what is lamenting? Lamenting is expressing your feelings of sadness and brokenness and grief and pain and anger at the brokenness in this world. It could be in your own life. It could be in the lives of others. So is there a place for lament in our lives? Do we need lament in our lives? Yeah. Unless the world is fixed, unless we're in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new earth we will never lament again. But for now, we need to learn how to lament. Carl Truman wrote this one article that was very um, popularly published called um, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And he was lamenting, as he's talking about how we need to lament, he was lamenting the fact that you go to many churches and there's no place for suffering. You have to be happy and clappy all the time. Everything's a pep rally and it's just, everything's great, right? And you've had a good week, right? Great, me too. And it's also, you know, smile and everything's good. And so you could feel almost out of place when you feel burdened by the brokenness of this world. But the majority of the Psalms are lamenting the brokenness in our own lives and the lives of those in this world. As you think about the shootings that have happened, the school shootings, two of them recently, lament is the proper response. How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? Have mercy on us because of our sins and the sins of our people, our society. That's lament. Lament is necessary. I would encourage, we, we don't, we haven't, my fault here, 
We haven't modeled in our church, in our prayers, psalms of lament. We do prayers of confession, which are, which are a subset of psalms of lament. But we need to, I need to maybe even lead us in more, psalms, more prayers of lament in our church. Because lamenting is necessary. Let me read to you one lament psalm. I have two here, but I'm only going to pick one. I'm going to pick Psalm 90, but I encourage you to look at Psalm 74 or Psalm 13 later on your own. But I'm going to do Psalm 90. It's a shorter one. It's a Psalm of Moses. Here's Moses lamenting. So think about the brokenness in the world and in ourselves and in our people. And how do you express brokenness to God? How do you pray to God when you are feeling? Now, what's the feeling here? The feeling is sorrow or fear. When you feel fear or sorrow, can you praise and worship God? The answer is yes. You lament. So look at, look at this lament. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. He begins with an address to God in verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. So he's addressing God. It's a prayer. But then he describes his trouble, the brokenness, in verses 3 through 11. Listen to the brokenness. What's wrong with this world, Moses? As you're praying to God, what's wrong with the world, Moses? Well, here's what's wrong. You return mankind to the dust, saying, return descendants of Adam. By the way, sorry, before I go on, you remember Psalm 90 is the beginning of book 4 of their hope in exile, right? So just remember that, even that brokenness. It's not Moses' situation, but the psalmist in the order, it's during brokenness and exile away from God. So here's the brokenness, verse 4. For in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. You end their lives, they sleep. They are like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows. By evening it withers and dries up. What's his whole point there? We're dying. People around me are dying. My friends are dying. My loved ones are dying. People in society are dying. We're like dust. That's broken. That's something to feel sorrow and grieve and lament over. Verse 7. Why? Why are we dying? For we are consumed by your anger. We are terrified by your wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Our lives last 70 years, or if we are strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. So what is he lamenting? Brokenness. Our sins. We're dying because we're sinners. The wages of sin is death and we're guilty. And yet we lament the brokenness in this world. So that's and, and after the description of trouble, here's the prayer request. Verses 12 through 17 is the prayer request, okay? So as you lament the brokenness in this world, verse 12, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Here's another lament phrase. Lord, how long? And then prayer request again. Turn and have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. Make us rejoice for as many days as, as you have humbled us. For as many years as we have seen adversity, let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. So there's a lament. God, this world is broken. My church is broken. My city is broken. My, our state is broken. California is broken. If you didn't know that, it is. Um, our country is broken. Our world is broken. 
and we have much to lament over. So we pray to God with sorrow, with fear, and we just bring it to God. We honestly speak to God about it. So lament to God rather than complain to others. Didn't Jesus lament? He took one of the most famous psalms of lament on his lips on the cross in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? That's a psalm of lament, Psalm 22. Jesus prayed the psalms of lament, and we should too. Okay, number six. Sixth, so lament to God. Number seven now, repent to God. Repent. These are penitential psalms. So when you feel broken, when you feel convicted, when you feel contrition and brokenness in your heart, when you feel guilty, can you worship God when you feel guilty? Can you worship God when your heart is hard? Yes. Psalms 51, pray, pray the psalms of, of repentance. Guilt is a gift from God because it drives you to who? To God. Now, Satan will use that gift like he does with all of God's gifts, and he'll distort it. We're going to Psalm 51, by the way. Um, He'll use the gifts of God and distort it to drive you to despair. God won't forgive you. God needs, you need to to read your Bible 10 weeks straight and then God might forgive you or something like that. You know, there's, you need to be faithful. Go share the gospel with three people. Then God might, might think about forgiving you for your wickedness. Guilt is a gift from God when it's, when it's biblically defined guilt. Can I worship God when I'm, when my heart is hard? Yes. Can I worship God when I'm feeling guilty? Yes. How? Prayer, prayer of repentance. That's how. So Psalm 51. All right. Uh, verse 1. Verses 1 and 2. Here's the prayer for cleansing. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my transgression. That's a prayer request. Blot out my transgression. Second prayer request, or another way of saying it, verse 2. Completely what? Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Can you worship God when guilty? Not only can you, you must. You must worship God when your heart is hard. You must worship God when you're guilty by asking for cleansing, by asking for forgiveness. Why? So here's the rationale. Why should God forgive? Or why am I asking for forgiveness? Verse three, for I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I have sinned and have done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass the sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. So you desire heart worship and you know my heart is not worshiping you. So that's why I'm asking for your prayer. So what's the petition again? Here's a prayer request. Here's more petitions, more prayer requests in verse seven. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Uh, Let me hear joy and gladness because I'm not joyful, but I'm still worshiping you because I don't hear joy, but let me hear it. Lord, open my ears. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed because of my sin, let them rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. That's not meaning you could lose your salvation. Who's praying this prayer? David. What was David given when he was anointed with oil by Samuel? Or who was David given? He was given the Holy Spirit, right? And what what did God do to Saul? What did God take away from Saul? Or who did God take away from Saul? The Holy Spirit. So David is saying, Saul sinned and, and you took his spirit and you gave, him, you gave your spirit to me to make me king. Don't take your spirit from me because I committed adultery and murder. 
Don't take your spirit from me. Please forgive me. Don't take, it, don't take your spirit from me. That's the prayer here. Okay? To the Messiah, uh, the Messiah's prayer. Um, verse 12, still the petition, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And then here's a vow. So if you pray for forgiveness, God, forgive me because I sinned. Please change me and give me joy in you again. So then what's the vow? Verse 13, God, if you forgive me, here's what I'm going to do. Again, it's not paying God back. It's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a proper repentant response. Then I will do what? I'll teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Time out. Just short note here for disciple makers, our church members. If you ever feel guilty, like I, have you ever said this to yourself when you want to correct someone else in the church who you love? Who am I to forgive them? I'm also, or who am I to confront them? I'm guilty too. Have you ever felt that before? Or is it just me? Just me? All right. I think some of you have felt that as well, right? So what do you do? That doesn't mean you don't correct. First, you ask for what? forgiveness and you repent and then you do verse 12 then you will what teach i mean what if david after this was correcting someone for adultery does david have the right to correct someone who's about to give into adultery yes because david is sinless no but because he's been forgiven he's repentant okay perfection doesn't give you the right to teach other people and if if anyone ever says to you you know what you're a hypocrite for telling me that just say you know what you're right that i have sinned I didn't realize it. Let me repent right now. Or if you have repented, say, you know, you're absolutely right that I've done that. I've asked God for forgiveness and he's forgiven me. And you can ask forgiveness for God, from God too right now because you're sinning right now. So don't be, don't be deterred or tricked by Satan when you're guilty. Ask for forgiveness, get cleansing, and then rebuke and reprove others in love. Okay, that's, that's verse 12. David's gonna do it. Then I will teach, or verse 13, I will teach the rebellious your ways. Verse 14, here's his prayer request. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Okay, so here we learn you pray for forgiveness and then you make a vow. Or you, you just respond. I will continue repentance. Not I'm going to ask God for forgiveness and I'm going to keep on sinning because it's not a big deal. That's not a prayer of repentance, right? It's God, forgive me. Help me to change. And then guess what? Let's not be too hard on each other. You're going to fail again. So what do you do? Repent again, and then what? God, help me to change. But you do that prayer genuinely from your heart a thousand times, and guess what happens? Not right away from prayer one to prayer two to prayer three, but from prayer one to prayer 150, guess what happens to your life? You've changed. You've changed. You don't notice it from prayer to prayer. But take, just take a step back and look at the bigger picture of all of your prayers of repentance, all the times you've confessed your sins to your accountability partners, and guess what you see over time? Transformation. Isn't God gracious to change us when we repent? You change through repentance, not besides repentance, but through it. All right, that's, uh, so repent to Yahweh. Number seven, rage with Yahweh. All right, we're gonna close with it. Number eight is praise God, so we don't need to do praise again. I was going to, but getting short on time here, let's go to rage with Yahweh. This one's a big one theologically. What do I mean rage with Yahweh? What about when you're feeling anger or rage? Is it ever right to feel anger and rage? Psalm 4.4, Ephesians 4.25, be angry and do not sin. What's the command? Be what? Be angry. 
Sometimes it's sinful for you to not be angry. If one of your dear loved ones was abused, one of your children was abused by a predator, and you don't feel anger, something's wrong with me if I don't feel, right? If you don't feel anger, something's wrong with you. That's a righteous time to be angry. But be angry and do not sin. But, but can I worship God when I'm angry? I mean, when my, when my temperature has just went through the roof, can I worship God in the midst of anger? The answer is yes. You not only can, you must. You must worship God when you're enraged. You must. Well, okay, so what does that mean? What does it mean to worship God when I'm enraged? Well, look at Psalm 35, 1 through 8. Psalm 135, one, or not 135, Psalm 35, sorry. Psalm 35, 1 through 8. Here's a prayer when someone is enraged. David the Messiah here is praying because he has opponents and they are attacking him. And when you're attacked unjustly or you're oppressed, rage is a, is a proper response. Anger is a proper response. So here it is. Psalm 35, 1. Oppose my opponents, Lord. Fight those who fight me. God's, he's praying that God would fight these people. God, fight these people. Take your shields, large and small, and come to my aid. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers and assure me I am your deliverance. God, let those who intend to take my life be what? Disgraced and humiliate. Humiliate them, God. Let those who plan to harm me be turned back and ashamed. Let them be like chaff in the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. They hid their net from me for me without cause. They dug a pit for me without cause. Let ruin come on him unexpectedly. And let that net, let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his what? Ruin. Let him be ruined. Let him die. And if they die, it is a point for man to die once. Then comes what? Judgment. Let them die, God. Ruin them. Let them fall into the trap. Let them fall on their own swords. Wow. Can we pray that? That's rage. Um, can't, so, yeah, the question is, do we pray this? How do we pray this? How do you pray a prayer like this? Let's go to the hardest phrase in the Psalms in, in this regard. Psalm 137. Psalm 137, seven, uh, 8 and 9. Now, if you're not a Christian here, I understand you're going to have objections here, and you're right to think. You need to think out loud. We, are, we, t- we say that if you're not a Christian here, even if you're a Christian here, you need to bring your questions to God. Don't run from your questions, because this one is about to raise some serious questions. <laughs> psalm 137, 8 and 9. It's a psalm of lament and imprecatory psalm. It's a psalm of rage. He's feeling rage, and what does he say? Uh, look at verse 7. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said. That day at Jerusalem, destroy it, destroy it, down to its foundations, when they were destroying Jerusalem. Verse 8, daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who what? Pays you back what you have done to us. And then verse 9, the hardest one. Happy is the one who what? Takes your little ones and what? Dashes them against the rocks. We're pro-life in this church. We believe that abortion, we believe that unborn babies are babies and humans. They have life and they are to be protected. But here, isn't this anti-life in that regard? Take the little ones, take the babies, and dash them against the rock. Happy are the ones who do that? 
What do we do with a psalm like this? It's in the Bible. Now, some who don't believe or trust God ultimately will maybe just attack the Bible at this point. That's not what we're going to do because we trust God's word, that every word, we must live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, even Psalm 137.9. So how do we live on this word? Well, before I answer that, I'm going to give you an answer. Let me just give you one more person who prayed these types of prayers. Jesus prayed these prayers. He said in, or he, he made these types of statements. In, Psalm 20, in Matthew 23, 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe, and then t- Luke 10, 13, Woe to you, Chorazin, a whole city. Woe to you. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. What is woe? That's the opposite of blessed. That's cursed. Cursed are you. Woe to you. Disaster upon you. So what do we do with statements like this? Three things. Okay. Gordon Wenham has helped me with this. I'm listening to one of his lectures. I'm going to forward you the lecture on our church email in case you want to listen to it. It's called Praying the Psalms. But he, he was quoting another book that I'm sorry, I don't remember the title, but he says, he, he gives three points here. Number one, this is prayer to who? Prayer to God and not vigilante action. So when a crime has been done, it's good to go to who with it? Go to God and not go get your gun and go do justice yourself, right? So that's first of all. It's God-centered. It's not vigilante, take justice into my own hands. That's not the prayer. It's a prayer to God. We could trust God for judgment because God is the just judge, right? It's number one. So it's prayer. So judgments are based on God's justice, not our our insight. So uh, Gordon Wenham writes, these cries for help are not about minor conflicts that could be resolved by greater generosity on the part of the one praying or by the exercise of love of neighbor. So it's not those types of issues. Rather, those who pray these psalms are crying out about the injustice they suffer and are protesting about the arrogance of the violent. Have you ever had violent, arrogant people who are in power and they're oppressing? They are impelled by the contradiction posed by the mystery of evil and the presence of evil people in a world supposedly in God's care. This is not a trivial or selfish complaint. They are protesting not just because they are being hurt, but because God's justice, goodness, and power are at stake. So it's a prayer for God to judge. If people get, and let's just be, let's be honest, or let's just, let's just put this out there. More people, there are people who get away with crimes, right? There are people who do heinous crimes against people, and they get away with it. Never to be caught on earth by a cop, never to be tried in court, never to be sentenced. And there are people who get caught and are let off the hook after trial, Right? even though they, they committed the crime. What, what kind of prayer should we pray there? It's not just a personal, I'm mad at you because you made fun of me or you said a comment that offended me. It's injustice has been done. God, do you see what's going on here? God, aren't you in control? Why would you let these, these young, innocent, helpless victims undergo this pain for this many years? God, judge those who have oppressed. Judge those who have abused their power. Again, it's not take out your own weapon and go do it yourself. It's a prayer to God. That's number one. Number two, second comment on this. All right, one more thing on that one. 
This, these prayers are Messiah-centered, not me-centered. It's not self-centered prayers. It's Messiah-centered. So if you go against the Messiah, King David, or you go against King Jesus, what do you deserve? If you go against King Jesus, if you reject Jesus, what's, what do you deserve? Hell, right? Judgment. That's, that's judgment. And so we're just praying along with the Bible. God, if they reject Christ, may their judgment come upon them righteously. Not because I'm mad or bitter personally, but because that's the right thing to do. Far be it from God to let unrepentant sinners into the new earth, right? That would be a great travesty. Greater than any criminal getting away on earth and living 20 or 50 more years would be someone living with eternal life who wasn't punished or their sin wasn't punished on the cross. That would be the greatest injustice of of all. So the prayer is, God, no, judge them. Those who refuse Christ, our prayers that they come to Christ, but if they don't, our prayers judge them. Okay, so that, that's a prayer. Okay. Um, secondly, though, the hope is in God's justice, not... So, so why do we pray these prayers? Because we're hoping in God's justice. We're not resigned to passivity. Don't you feel helpless when you see people get away with crimes? Is there anything we can do? We can't just... If they're the ones in power and they got away with it, is there anything we can do? Yes, what can we do? We can rage with God. We can pray. We can pray these prayers. So in other words, we're praying for God's justice rather than just passively throwing up our hands and be like, well, I can't do anything about it anyways. Because when we say we can't do anything, anything about it anyways, what do we do? We just get passive and we just say, you know, I'm going to be indifferent because it hurts too much. But instead of saying it hurts too much, I can't do anything, we can rage with God. We can pray with God for his justice to come. Okay, so in other words... These prayers are prayers of hope-filled justice rather than resignation to injustice. Okay? So you need to rage with God. Thirdly and lastly, third way to think about these these types of psalms is um, these psalms express sensitivity to those who are suffering and oppressed. If you're not the one who was abused, but you're, you're praying with someone who is abused, what can you pray for them? You could pray against the family's persecutors. Uh, um, you know, Gordon Wenham, when he was lecturing on us, he was reading. We pray for um, a persecuted. We pray for persecuted, persecuted Christians every Sunday night here in our evening services. And um, one thing I have not instructed our church to do, or taught our church to do, but Gordon Wenham was teaching in his lecture was, you know, you could teach your people to pray imprecatory psalms for persecutors. He read a story about um, a woman who was drugged, a Christian woman who was drugged and raped by three other men from a different religion who were persecuting the church in that area. And they're trying to terrorize the church. You could pray for deliverance. You could pray for their salvation, but you can also pray for judgment, right? It's right to pray these psalms. These psalms are not for us to just, oh, we can't pray these psalms. No, you could pray them with humility and with Christ-centeredness, but you, you could pray them. Okay, so a few more things here. If you're going to care for people, we need to be passionate about God's holiness, but also about suffering. One out of four women have been abused, and one out of six men experience abuse, they say, according to the statistics. And in my pastoral ministry... That statistic seems about right in terms of just when I, when I know people who've gone through things and have asked these questions. We must love others. We must love the victim as we pray for them, but we must also love the perpetrator. We love them by holding out hope and praying for their salvation. But we don't know God's final judgment, so we don't know if they're cursed. So we pray with the if. God, if they will not repent, damn them to hell. Wow, does that sound strong? That does sound strong, right? But is that Biblical? Again, you have to say if, right? God, save them. Open their eyes. Change them. But even if you change them and they get saved, may they still face earthly justice. They still need to go to court. They still need to go to trial. They still need to serve their time. 
But God save them anyways. Make them a brother or sister in Christ. But if they will not, then righteously judge them, God. Condemn them as we all deserve condemnation. If they will not come to Christ. So that's, that's how we pray. We pray with a big if. A big if. If you're not a Christian, let me share this good news, good news with you as we close, because it's heavy, right? If you're not a Christian, let me say to you, we all deserve damnation. You as a non-Christian and me as a Christian, I deserve damnation. Everyone in this room deserves damnation because we're all sinners. But here's the good news. Christ took the damnation on himself. He was damned on the cross. And we celebrate Christ's damnation every time we talk about the cross. That's us praying an imprec- that's us doing an imprecatory psalm. May Christ be damned on the cross for our sins so that we can be what? Saved. We're not the cross is not a, a taking away of justice, it's a celebration of justice, right? God. So so here's the good news if you're not a Christian. No no one needs to be damned because Christ was damned for sinners. If you will repent from your sins and trust in Jesus who died for you and rose for you, you can be forgiven and saved. That's the sweet news. And God's inviting you to trust in him and turn from your sins. And just know, if anyone in this room, professing Christian or not, if we are not resting in Christ and his damnation and resurrection, then we ourselves will be damned. So there's the great invitation for damned sinners like us. Come to Christ and you will be saved. And if not then God's judgment will happen and, pray, and Christians need to affirm God's judgment. Okay, so just to recap before we close, praise God, thank God. What's the other one? Heed God, trust God, lament to God, repent to God, rage with God. And then we, we would close with Psalm 150. You could read it at home. Praise God. At the end of the day, here's the point. No matter what emotion you're going through, you can worship God. Not only that, even more, I'll go one step further. With any emotion you're going through at any moment of your day, you must worship God. You get to worship God. That's our privilege. That's our joy. Lament and praise, worship, brokenness, pain, grief, whether you eat or drink or whatever you're doing or whatever you're feeling, glorify God. Pray to God with the full range of emotions. So go to him. If you're not a Christian, go to him now and ask him for forgiveness in Christ. And then, church family, let's not stifle each other's emotions. Let's shepherd each other's emotions towards God. Because it doesn't matter what you're experiencing, humanly speaking, you can worship God with, those, with, 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 with any kind of feeling. So let us do that. The main idea is pray and praise God in the midst of opposition so that you live happy in God and his coming kingdom. If you don't do this, We'll drift farther. Our feelings will take us away from God. But they don't have to. Our feelings, if we do this, our feelings actually drive us to God and to his throne. And not only that, they drive us to one another. Sin and bad feelings isolate us from God and each other. Feelings to God unite us with the people of God. And we mourn together. We rage together. We pray together. We worship together. That's what we do every Sunday here. Jesus said again, I'll close with Christ's words again. An hour is coming when the Father will, will seek, want persons to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth in every moment of their day with every emotion they feel. Let's pray. Father, take these words of these psalms and hide them in our hearts. 
we want to pray and praise you all the day, every day. Not hypocritically, not, not merely giving up because our hearts are hard or enraged or indifferent, but whatever we're feeling, Father, teach us to come to you in conversation. We need your help, your Holy Spirit to help us, and your word, and your Son, our Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.